Hello, and welcome to Queering Desi. I'm your host, Priya. As a South Asian queer non-binary person, I have learned a lot on my journey of self-acceptance and building community. So in each episode, I will bring you a slice of South Asian LGBTQ life with a guest who exemplifies what it means to be who you are and to live your truth. I like to create a safe and open discussion with our guests and listeners. So if the topics on this podcast are controversial, please know these opinions are of the guest and host, and we don't mean any offense. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This week on Queering Desi, I'm so excited to have on uh, someone that I've looked up to many years for as an activist, Yalini Dream. Yalini, welcome to Queering Desi. Uh, thank you so much, Priya. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, absolutely. Um, if you can take a moment to just introduce yourself to our listeners, if they may not be familiar with your work. Sure. My name is Yalani Dream. I am a storyteller and a spiritual creative at heart. And I practice that work through a blend of poetry, theater, dance, and song. I also work as a facilitator and a consultant. As Priya mentioned, I've been an activist and organizer as well. And one of my expertise is integrating arts and organizing. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that introduction. I think what has always blown me away about you is seeing the different mediums that you kind of utilize to get your voice out there. Um, and I would love to start with that kind of conversation. I think I first encountered your work and met you at DCQ in 2013. But I think what I've followed about your journey, and I would love for you to enlighten, is this encompassing of all these different mediums. Can you talk a little bit about that, about lending your voice and kind of taking action through all these various art forms? I see the core, the impulse as one And then that source flows through many different rivers and streams. I'm inspired a lot by the way the Apsara dancers talk about dance. They talk about dance as facilitation between the earth and sky. And I see my work in a similar vein, whether I'm dancing or storytelling, whether I'm facilitating or working to transform human systems. I understand that work as a facilitation between our human experience and our relationship to the earth, all living beings, the divine, our ancestors, and our descendants. And I think there are numerous paths in which that energy and transformation can take place and flow through. You talk about it in this great sweeping way, and I it gives me pause because it makes me realize that on a daily basis, it may not be the way that I think about my processes and the ways that I kind of go about doing what I do day in and day out. And I think for me, I would love to know more about how you then bring in yourself, right? Your identities, your culture into this kind of translation of this space between all these mediums, right? Between the earth and something greater. How do you then kind of bring in all of these other things that may, for lack of a better way to say it, like be very human created and sometimes divisive means of categorizing humans or or the human relations aspect of that? 
How does that kind of fold into what you're talking about? In many creative practices, specificity is highly valued, right? Otherwise, things just kind of become this this blur of the general modern dance aesthetic or becomes just, yeah, we lose a lot without the specificity. The specificity is what illuminates the story. It's what gifts us with greater wisdom. And I believe in actually leaning into specificity, being transparent and really being honest and detailed, we can actually reach deeper truths that we can experience in an accessible and sometimes universal way. Mm. So perhaps not everyone has experienced that specific perspective or experience or story, but there's a way that specificity invites and allows others to be able to learn, grow, and transform from that. So I'm very much shaped by the specificity of my personal experience. I'm also shaped by the specificity of my family and community history. And I'm also shaped by the specificity of the conditions that I navigate, engage with, and choose to shift and change. Mm. That's a great point. I think the specificity is something that, again, just for me, at least I'll say, like, can be uncomfortable at times, especially if that learning journey has just begun or at any point along that path. Can you talk a little bit about, like, your journey in terms of opening all the kind of avenues or or strings that kind of bring together all your identities, a little bit about your journey of kind of understanding the specificity of those in your life? You know, every time I tell a different story about my journey, it shifts radically depending on like where I start and what thread I choose to follow. But Mm. I feel deeply motivated from spiritual practice, experience, and faith. So I would say that from a really young age, I have memories going back to when I was three years old, I felt connected to forces that were not necessarily tangible or things that we could see. But feelings and energy and the way in which that was contextualized for me was through Catholicism. My parents are very religious and so is my extended family. And so anything that was a psychic experience, uh, an ability to be able to interpret what somebody was feeling or thinking without words, the ability to Sometimes I would have dreams that uh, would come true or would reflect the future. And all of that was explained to me through Catholicism. Mm. And so I became a believer in God and angels and saints at a very young age, not only because of 
what my parents were teaching me, but because I was having this experience that couldn't be explained through tangible things or reason or logic. Hmm. I think I was naturally an empathetic child. I was very connected energetically and that informed a lot of how I moved through the world. And then I think as my parents were processing what it meant to have left Sri Lanka and then for them to have a child outside of Sri Lanka and to be raising a child in a different context, it brought up their own memories of childhood. And so much of my bedtime stories and were my parents trying to explain their home, their life, why they had left. And it included speaking about the troubles that were in Sri Lanka and also the violence and bigotry that my father had faced. And also sometimes my mother, she focused less on the difficulties in Sri Lanka. I think she was just really missing home. And so she actually spoke more about what she loved about Sri Lanka. So between the two of them, I got both a sense of the violence, dangers, bigotry, as well as just the beauty, magic, and love that my mother experienced growing up in Sri Lanka. Mm. And so I remember at a really young age philosophizing and trying to understand like how some children could be born in some places and some children could be born in other places, how there's war in some places and there's not war in other places and contemplating what would have happened if my father had died as a child. One of the stories he used to tell me was how he witnessed one of the massacres in the late 50s in Colombo in Sri Lanka and was in the midst of that. And as a child, he witnessed adults and children and Tamil people being doused in gasoline and being burned to death in front of him. He witnessed this massacre. Mm. And my father had polio when he was a child, so that had impacted the way that he walked. So I remember him telling me the story of being like unable to run away and having to be in the midst of all of this violence and then a priest scooping him up and taking him into a church for shelter. And so I remember like being kind of cuddled up into my dad Mm. and thinking about what would have happened if my dad didn't live? Would I still have been born? Would my soul have found its way to my mother's body? Would I have existed? And so I think my parents moving through, trying to heal, sort out, figure out their own journeys as immigrants and as people whose homelands were being impacted and devastated by war definitely sparked a philosophical and spiritual curiosity within me and exploration within me at a very young age. And 
as time went on, my parents assimilated more and more or tried their best to assimilate <laughs> more and more to dominant culture. And I think the ways in which they processed their grief was there was definitely a period where they just stopped talking about Sri Lanka. And then there was so many tensions within Tamil communities mm. and it felt like everything about Sri Lanka and everything about being Tamil started to feel so dangerous growing up. And they stopped sharing those stories with me and stopped talking about that. And as a child, I think I also figured out somewhere along the line that you experience less bigotry if you can blend in and assimilate. And the more quote-unquote American in some spaces, the more white you could be, the easier it was to navigate um, society. Mm-hmm. I'm the eldest cousin on my mother's side, Periaka on my mama's side, and second eldest on my father's side. And my eldest Akka on my father's side has Down syndrome. So the the experiences, challenges, and obstacles that she was navigating was different from what I was navigating. So I definitely felt like I was figuring it out the entire time. Mm-hmm. I didn't have like an older cousin or somebody else who had been raised outside of Sri Lanka to like tell me how things worked or, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, anything about pop culture or all of these things. And I was experiencing a lot of culture clash, you know, Amma was raising me in kind of village ways. And I was the one who wasn't allowed to wear the skirt above their knees, Mm. who, you know, didn't shave their legs. The school nurse told me what deodorant was. (laughs) Um, I, I was like learning everything on the fly and then trying to translate it into my parents um, mm-hmm. and try to get Amma to understand that, I, you know, these things cause us a lot of conflicts. But a lot of the conflicts were because I was being ostracized and outcast for not fitting in mm-hmm. in the different social spaces I was in in school. So I remember just getting a huge fight with Amma about Mm. guest jeans. I was going to a public school where there was no uniform and guest jeans were really popular. And then Amma got so mad at me for being so superficial and materialistic. She made me wear a uniform every day (laughs) to school. So I wore the same outfit every day, this like gray pinover, and I had to wear stockings. And it was horrible. I was so happy Mm. when I left that school because, Mm. you know, in American culture, if you wear clothes every day, the same clothes every day, people think you're dirty, they make fun of you, mm. you know, I already smelled like curry, <laughs> you know, coming from home. <laughs> and so along the way, like by the time I was in junior high school and like early high school, I was trying my best to just chameleon wherever mm. I could and adapt and assimilate. And I became very religious as well. Mm. So in high school, I was in the youth choir, the adult choir. I was a confirmation sponsor. Mm. I did. I <laughs> taught Sunday school. You know, I went to church more than my parents did. Mm. I was at church like all the time. And I could feel this feeling of something else, of 
of divine energy, of the power of prayer, of something beyond all the superficialities, something, this thing that I couldn't explain. And the only way it was explained to me was through church. So Mm -hmm. that's how I pursued and followed that energy. Mm. Absolutely. You were talking about this kind of journey of coming to that kind of power. And you said many things that I do want to follow up on. Maybe the most recent of which would be like finding this vessel of like religion and prayer, right? Like, what did it mean for you to connect to something outside of yourself, especially considering like all these other things you've talked about, like ancestral trauma or the idea of home and being detached or broken away from that often in a traumatic manner. How did that kind of fold into your spirituality and your kind of journey towards that? I think one of the most powerful moments for me was my grandfather passed away when I was six years old and he was in Sri Lanka. Unfortunately, my mother was unable to go to Sri Lanka. She was unable to go back to Jaffna, um, Mm. Yalpana, and was the only sibling who was unable to attend his funeral. And her grief during that time was intense and profound. And I had also sensed his passing. So when he passed away, I had, I started crying and my parents came in a little bit later and they saw that I was crying and they were like, why are you crying? And I, I just said that I misplaced my shoes. I just made up some, Mm. I was always losing my shoes and getting in trouble for them <laughs> for, for it. <laughs> and, um, and always like wearing my fancy shoes when I wasn't supposed to be and like, you know, or, or losing my glasses. So I just, um, made it up. I remember just making it up in the moment. Like, mm. why am I crying? I don't know why I'm crying, but, uh, I lost my shoes <laughs> and then my parents were like, okay. And then they told me that Papa, my, uh, grandfather, had passed. And I really, really loved him. We had, I had been to Sri Lanka and had spent time with him, spent many months with our families there. And I loved my grandfather so much. And he had also taught my mother so much about spirituality that she was also passing on to me. Mm. And one thing that he had told Amma was, uh, my mother also used to have dreams where she would see people who had passed away. Mm. And when she saw them in her dreams, she would run away. And Papa had told her, no, no, no. Why are you running away? You know, and she's like, because they're dead. <laughs> and he he said, um, no, no, you, you know, that's them coming to visit you. Next time somebody who is dead visits you in your dreams, listen to what they have to say mm-hmm. and talk to them. And he also used to tell my amma that all you have to do to pray is talk to God because she was the kind of kid who would like fall asleep reading her prayers Mm. and like, you know, get a little frustrated with the prayer books and things like that. (laughs) And he said, all you have to do is talk to God. And she had also transmitted this message to me. And my grandfather, Papa, would come to me in my dreams when I was young. And I used to talk to him and he told me in one of my dreams that we were going to move from England to the U.S. And I was so excited because 
in my head, moving to the U.S. means that you'll be rich. And so, <laughs> uh, because that's what everybody knew about the U.S. <laughs> and so I, you know, would tell my mama about these dreams. And I began talking to Papa and just telling him everything about like my life and what I was up to. And whenever I felt like I didn't really know what to do, I would talk to him and I would pray to him. And I felt that guidance from him my entire mm -hmm. life. And to this day, I really feel like my grandfather has seen my life through my eyes and understands what it is and why it is that I do what I do. And I, mm. I believe that he's backing me. Yeah. And in part because he's been with me since I was six years old. Mm. <laughs> and yeah. so I think that's where some of the seeds of recognizing the power of our ancestors mm. and believing that I can receive guidance from beyond really grew in me. Mm. My parents were really busy. My amma's perspectives and the way her brain works and the way my brain works are very different. In some ways we have similarities. Like we do have like some shared psychic abilities. She definitely has um, this power regarding her dreams and is energetically very powerful. And so in, in some ways, there are ways in which we match but there are ways in which we're just so completely different as well. And so I think being able to feel like an experience having an ancestral guide was really important for me. And I think it also helped me to get beyond kind of the immediate BS, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. just like the social hierarchies, the superficialities, the materialism, the, the coolness, who's cool, who's not. Mm -hmm. I think it really helped me to have true friends. Mm -hmm. I really love my younger self for just having great taste in friends. I still have, we moved so much when I was young, but I still have like connections with like my best friend from when I was eight years old, my best friend from when I was 11 years old, my mm. best friend from when I was 13 years old. And I think I just had such great taste in friends because yeah. even though we live different lives and have had very different experiences, I was able to pick friends who had kind hearts and who had enough courage to live beyond what was cool or what was not cool. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you're touching upon something that I also want to ask about, which is this idea of like the assimilation, right? You talk about the U.S. having this notion of, oh, we're going to be rich, right? That's the mm -hmm. outside kind of perspective and then the clothing and then even as far as connecting with the folks that you did along your journey, like how do you then kind of go from this idea of trying to conform and play into some of those social hierarchies and things like that to embracing what makes you quote unquote different or embracing your inner self in a way that it can be a privilege for some people, but can also be unsafe for some people in all these other ways, like to break out of that assimilation. What was that like for you? What is that like for you? 
I think it was a combination of a few different things. One was the continuation and evolution of my spiritual path, mm. which we've been talking about. Yeah. And then another was learning history mm. and filling in the gaps, information being shared with me. I had always had this feeling growing up, like I should feel so lucky to not be in the midst of war and that I should feel so lucky and privileged and blessed to be outside of Sri Lanka and being raised outside of Sri Lanka, which I think was great in the sense that it it helped me re- really recognize my privilege at a really young age. I mean, I was having these thoughts at like three or four years old, right? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> But I think there was also something harmful in the sense that I felt that I didn't really belong and it was just, and that I should feel so grateful. And I really internalized this idea that I need to be thankful to the British and for Americans. And when I had been socially conditioned to really think of that as like white Americans and white British people, because our family was able to come to these countries and my father not only being a Tamil person but being somebody who was affected by polio wouldn't have had any opportunity and mobility access to education in Sri Lanka and we should be so grateful for the opportunities that he's been able to have by being in England and the US and thus the opportunities that I was mm. able to have What was erased from that narrative was the ways in which Black and Indigenous people made it possible for somebody with my skin color to be able to move through Mm. these lands and have kind of access to certain resources, education, and mobility. I am pretty clear For Tamil, I'm a medium skin color, you know, within the performance world, I'm considered Mm -hmm. darker skinned, right? Amongst many South Asian Americans, I'm considered darker skinned. But amongst Tamils, I definitely have skin color privilege um, as well. But I know that somebody with my skin color would not have been able to drink at the white only Mm. water fountain, right? So I think I was taught this idea of white American liberalism and human rights and and not taught about the history of colonization and slavery. So I believed that these freedoms, quote unquote, were granted to me by white greatness yeah. <laughs> and yeah. being shared information about the history of people of color in this country, the history of Black people, the history of Indigenous people, and the history of Asian people was really important in me shifting how I understood my position Mm. within American society. And then I think I had also been really conditioned by a second wave white feminist perspective that taught me that my mother was backwards and that all these social problems that I was having was because of my parents' foreignness and 
And that made me really ashamed of being Tamil. Mm. And when I began to reconnect with our own family and community history, I began to reject all of the social conditioning and racism that was telling me that my family's culture was inherently backwards. And as I started to learn more about the history of colonization and started to flip this other narrative that I had been taught, that we were somehow these backwards people that if it wasn't for the British, we wouldn't have known how to tell time. <laughs> if, you know, the Portuguese didn't come with Catholicism, that I, you know, we would have somehow been a sinful people or something, you know, mm. just these really absurd concepts when I articulate them right now. But it was the norm and the dominant way of thinking. And if nobody's challenging that, that's something that's affirmed to you from TV, from books, from religion, from every direction. And so being able to have access to other histories that subverted that dominant narrative was so fundamental for my political and spiritual awakening. Because for a long time, I had thought everything that's wrong about me or like, I wish I could just be white, honestly. Yeah. I, I, you know, t and yeah. our era of TV was such at that time that it just made it seem like, you know, the Brady Bunch and like everything <laughs> yeah. um, white was like amazing. And if I could just, you know, if I was in a white family, I would somehow have this amazing life, which also erases so many experiences of white people who did not fit into that middle class or wealthy heteronormative, you know, mm. storytelling that was told at that time too. So I feel like those narrow perspectives not only were damaging for us as young people of color or, you know, as a young Tamil person growing up in America, but it was also damaging for anyone who didn't fit into those boxes. Yeah, absolutely. That is so relevant. I think what's interesting to hear is also this sense that a lot of this is still the experience. Like, I wish I could hear what you're saying and say, oh, that's just like how it used to be. And that we, you know, as communities and, and people, we have worked towards kind of a, a greater sense and awareness of certain issues, but that a lot of this still resonates today is humbling for me to realize that this is still so relevant in the current socio-political climate. You were talking about this idea of like breaking through that notion of assimilation, and you touched upon so many relevant things in the South Asian community, whether diaspora or whether in the homeland. But I think the couple of things that really stood out to me were like the colorism aspect, right? And then also the anti-Blackness, especially in America, but kind of anywhere, South Asian communities I think, still continue to struggle with understanding and awareness around Blackness and the kind of in tandem and the work that has been done before us for us to be allowed the privileges that we have even today. And then also like tying into that, 
queerness, right? So the way that queerness is performed, whether gender or sexuality, both within the South Asian communities, but at large in the diaspora. I'm curious for you, like how that kind of folds into the things that you've been talking about as well, because I think that's apropos to the show, but kind of in general, when the South Asian community struggles to identify and grapple with some of these histories that can be so traumatic. Where does kind of gender and sexuality and queerness and transness kind of fold into that as well? Yes, 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 yes. So many threads within yes. there. <laughs> A huge part of assimilation was disconnecting with my own ideas, thoughts, needs, experiences, mm-hmm. and in order to be able to fit into something that made life a little bit easier to navigate. Mm. So sometimes I wouldn't even understand why I was upset. I remember being in high school and just like randomly crying in between classes and my friend asking me why I'm crying. And I just, I couldn't even figure it out. I didn't know. I was just, I just felt unhappy. Mm. And I wasn't even aware of what had triggered me or what had upset me. I I don't even know if I knew I was crying until somebody pointed it out to me. I was so used to like giggle and wiggling out of harmful situations, of pretending like I didn't know what was going on in order to keep myself from letting people know that I feel humiliated or mm. just playing a lot of games so that I was even lying to myself. Mm. And so really being able to be present with my own desires, to be able to kind of cut through all this noise and protection that I had built around myself and all these habits to distract others as well as myself. And to actually dig deeper Mm. and be real and honest with myself was such a huge and profound spiritual transformation Mm. for myself. And I think, you know, my friends who have known me for a really long time, who have known me since I was that really insecure, nervous young person just trying to tread water socially to make it through um, and then saw the transformation of me into a much more grounded, empathetic, insightful person. I think that's why I still have held on to certain friends through all these different phases because they became politicized with me to a certain degree because they saw how powerful and important it was for me to be given information that helped me affirm my own dignity and then also be able to situate myself in a larger arc of time and place mm-hmm. so that I wasn't confined to these narrow, limited spaces. And then it was just such a powerful unfurling. Before I started really owning my own sexuality, I was owning my path as an artist. I was feeling something when I was performing that I recognized as 
divine. And I felt that this gift, this ability, this experience was a special and divine gift that I was unearthing. And I felt like it was so special that I found something that I love and that I'm feeling called to. And so I think the first really big layer of breaking down assimilation was starting to own myself as an artist. And that was something that was very, very difficult for my parents and for my extended family to accept because they recognized that I had school smarts. I had so many privileges in comparison to so much of my family. I mean, from being raised in the U.S., class privilege, just, I mean, we were the privileged family mm-hmm. within our broader family. And so it was expected that I should take advantage of all these privileges become a doctor or a lawyer and help everybody else and make a lot of money. (laughs) And I was like going against all of that for this fantasy. You know, everybody was like, at that time, there was no, no South Asians on TV. And there was Mm. certainly not South Asians who were a darker brown skin color. And there was no proper career path. Like I wanted to be an artist like this is Mm -hmm. ridiculous but I just felt so compelled and called and connected and again it was this even as a good little Catholic girl and Sunday school teacher I recognized creativity Mm -hmm. as something that was connected to the divine and felt like this is also God's work and that the most important thing is God so it doesn't matter that everybody else wants me to make a lot of money. I've got to follow this path. Mm. And so by the time I was 16 years old, I was like, I'm going to study theater in university. And it was just, it was a huge, huge disruption within our family. At that time, I didn't understand uh, the history of colonization and the ways in which South Asians are tracked economically and uh, the position of being the privileged servant that a doctor or lawyer or engineer holds. I didn't understand uh, how many forces systematically and structurally actually go against you when you break from the racial and economic box Mm. that people of color are expected to fit themselves into. So, you know, part of the racial hierarchies in the U.S. and part of the reason that so many South Asian families really emulate what it means to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer has to do with our colonial history Mm. as well. So that was my first, like, battle, huge battle was claiming being an artist. And I knew from those fights that if I truly want to live my life as I wish, that I needed to not be economically reliant on my parents, that I needed to live outside of their home, that, yeah, I needed to not be at the mercy of other people's limitations, Mm. and that I needed a certain level of sovereignty. And so being on that path towards my own sovereignty because of my desire to be an artist gave me the spaciousness to be able to come out as queer Mm. Um, because I was already having to break down every 
barrier and fight my way into a space where I could claim being an artist. And so I was actually outed through the invention of Google. Mm. So, you know, I was claiming my sexuality before Google was ever invented, before we ever knew there was going to be a search engine where anybody could look you up and know (laughs) what you were up to, before I even knew there were articles online about me. And so, uh, you know, my brother kind of called me up in the middle of the night and he was like, mom and dad discovered Google. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, Google yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay. And then I realized that there were all these things of me speaking at National Coming Out Day, me performing in a Saga event, me, you know, basically I was out on the internet and I wasn't even aware of it. And so that's how my my parents actually found out. That I was identifying as queer. And that was um, maybe 2001. I'm not sure. We can probably find out when <laughs> Google hit the, <laughs> yeah. hit the world, <laughs> the search engine. But before, you know, kind of dealing with the homophobia and transphobia within um, my family and broader society, I had to really unlearn it within myself. Mm. I remember being in high school and one of my friends coming out to me as bisexual and I thinking in my head, "Mm, I could be bisexual, but I'm going to focus on boys and men because I know that's not a sin. Mm. And I remember having that distinct thought as my response, you know, and then of course I was like being very religious. I was like, love the sinner, you know, not the sin or whatever that phrase is. And Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, very loving and accepting of my friends and affirming in this like pseudo religious (laughs) kind of condescending Mm -hmm. way. But my friend, you know, stayed friends with me and was very kind and sweet and patient as I came into deeper consciousness around gender and sexuality. And then I had a few moments uh, in college where I felt like I was kind of ethically crossing the line. Like I had, because I wasn't in touch with my own sexuality, like I was kind of a mess and I was sometimes drink too much. And I was, my desire and connection for women were coming out in kind of like sideways ways that I had to really pause myself And I was still, you know, attending church, you know, during this period and doing readings at the Catholic Center at, you know, my university. And I had to stop myself and pause and be like, what is going on with me? What am I running away from? And why am I such a mess? Mm -hmm. And I, I just started to pray through it. And again, I was also being exposed to information and community was really helpful. So a group called Chacon Tejas that was founded by Rumki, who I was so blessed to have a bisexual Tamil man who is a graduate student at the <laughs> University of Texas in Austin kind of open up space and invite me into this gay-straight alliance where I was able to gain more information and also be affirmed by somebody who was Tamil and queer mm-hmm. that being different is okay. And yeah, Ramki was such like a sweet Anna figure for me. And I didn't really have 
that, you know, in my own life. And being exposed to more information just helped kind of unlock all of these barriers that I had. Mm. Um, But I still needed to contend with it spiritually. And it was a lot of prayer, actually, that helped me understand that desire is not a sin, that there are limits to the Catholic Church, that the divine is beyond religious doctrine, and that desire in of itself is a divine force and that I needed to be honest with myself and that truth is a form of prayer. Mm. And once I really awoke to this idea of truth as prayer, I became much more courageous about being honest about my sexuality my path about who I was in this world, including my faults, including my mistakes, including, you know, like I just was like, this truth is the path I need to follow. Mm. And so I began becoming very honest with my family and it became very important to me to be able to not be hiding. I felt like if I understood that in Sri Lanka, for so many of our Tamil people who are gender non-conforming or queer, being honest and open could mean death, mm. right? And so I felt like if I have the privilege to be open without my life being taken away, I should claim that space, even if it meant being like, slandered, even if it meant being talked down to, even if it meant that people were going to disrespect me, even if it meant that I was going to be insulted or screamed at, um, that I was not going to be able to benefit or access economic support from my family or whatever. I felt like all of those things are like nothing in comparison to death, Mm. you know? And so I was like, I have this privilege that so many people don't have. And even though it is difficult, I wanted to be honest. Now, I think that analysis is flawed. I do think that the emotional impact of emotional abuse is something that needs to be attended to. And that can actually also lead to death, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't have an analysis at that time about like, what is needed to be able to heal us and support ourselves as trans, queer, intersex people who are contending with gender oppression, bigotry, homophobia, you know, and all of these things. Mm -hmm. So when I say that, yeah, that was my thought process, Mm -hmm. but I don't encourage that as a thought process, you know, today. And I do think everybody has their own journey. And I think the levels of homophobia and transphobia that people have to contend with is different in every situation and needs to, the specificity of that, of those conditions and situation needs to be, you know, attended to. But for myself, spiritually, I feel like I, once I kind of started wanting to live life honestly versus living life assimilating, Mm. spiritually, I think it would have been really hard for me 
to keep from my parents my sexuality, even though the way I was kind of like outed wasn't consensual, yeah. it was still necessary for my path. So I don't, I don't really feel like upset about having been Googled. I was just like, mm-hmm. ah, well, this is, yeah. I sort of see like, this is the way the universe, that's what the universe needed of yeah. me. And that moment was to be open and honest and to get that out of the way. Yeah, so. absolutely. I mean, if you could look back on that and and give your younger self any advice and younger self could be, you know, whatever that means to you. It could mean yesterday, 10 years ago, a, a different path, a timeline. But if you could give your younger self some advice now looking back, what would you say? I would definitely tell my younger self that they are so brave and, and affirming that the path that they're choosing is a noble and divine path. I questioned it a lot because of that tape recorder from my family that I was being selfish and that I was being stupid. And I I would also tell myself that I'm smart (laughs) (laughs) and have so much to offer. I would encourage myself to slow down uh, when I can, to trust that the money will come that I've got responsibility covered and that it's a presence that I need to work on. And I would also remind myself how beautiful I am. Uh, It took me a little too long to realize my beauty and how it magnifies throughout the world. And then I think as an artist, I would tell myself the need to be a little bit more (laughs) business-minded as a younger person and to grow the team earlier Mm. and not try to do everything myself because that, I think, unnecessarily wore me out Mm. because I didn't realize that, oh, maybe if I make a huge amount of honorarium from a gig, I should put that aside to pay someone to help me with logistics and communication. If I had figured that out a little bit earlier, I think life would have been easier. But I thought, no, I'm going to data entry every (laughs) mailing list. I'm going to send out every email. I'm going to, uh, and then rehearse and write and and then um, whatever other work, whatever other additional incomes are necessary in order to, make rent, et cetera, et cetera. So Mm. I was constantly juggling. I didn't think that I could build a business where I could pay people and pay my collaborators. And I think if that had entered my mind a little bit earlier, I could also, I paid people for artistic collaboration. So the musicians I worked with and everything like that. But I forgot that I could pay people to do administrative work and logistics, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's great advice. And and like I said, I think some of that I take away with me. So even in my present moment. So thank you for sharing that. And something I want to also come back to, and I, I feel often that even in two seasons of this show, I've not yet been able to fully address. And that again is my own privilege and my own access to that kind of conversation. But it's something that's always on my mind is, is the anti-Blackness and the caste and class privilege in 
the South Asian communities and especially the South Asian queer communities. I still see posts all the time. Um, I'm a part of many South Asian groups on Facebook that talk about, well, I'm a Brahmin, but, you know, I'm outside of India, so how does it matter? And it still floors me that caste privilege and and especially when it comes to colorism and anti-Blackness are still things in a younger generation or in different generations still we're blind to and we don't talk about enough. And so I, I wanted to just get some of your thoughts on kind of that unfolding and, and how that kind of fits into everything we've been talking about. It doesn't surprise me <laughs> that, <laughs> that uh, anti-Blackness, colorism, and casteism are so pervasive within uh, second generation because they are systemic, structural, intergenerational forces And it was designed, I believe, for us to internalize so deeply that we are unaware and that it becomes this almost where people make the mistake of thinking that these are natural circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so Alankai, which is how we call the island in Tamil, though my American accent is terrible, (laughs) so I know that... Uh, my cousins are like, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yes, so the is is such an interesting place to to look at when we start thinking about the legacy of anti-blackness and casteism. So going back to this thing about information and how we're conditioned by these dominant narratives that actually have a political motivation that has been set sometimes before we were born. I was talking to an auntie of mine and, you know, my parents' generation, they were educated by Catholic colonial schools. Uh, So these were like Irish nuns and priests in like the 1950s and 60s, right? And they were taught in school the racist story of evolution that reinforced a racial hierarchy that put African peoples at the bottom. And then, of course, as like Tamils, we're just like, uh, you know, people would, were contending with like, oh, are we just like, are we just like the next step on that ladder? Or like where, you know, like uh, trying to figure out that. And there became this distancing of so many Tamil people of that generation from Africanness and Blackness mm. because of the racist education that people were being provided that reinforced a racial hierarchy. Then we have layered upon that the history of casteism and the caste system, which also affirms this idea of innate social hierarchy and superiority. And, you know, Sri Lanka is very interesting because, you know, the dominant caste in Tamil communities and also the dominant caste in Sinhalese communities is agricultural caste. That caste in Tamil Nadu is categorized as a backwards caste, Mm. as um, Sudra. Uh, But it's a dominant caste within Tamil communities on the island. Um, and that has to do with the different histories of power play, colonization, the ways in which the Dutch and Portuguese 
colluded with uh, various communities in order to be able to gain dominance over the island. Mm. So it's this really interesting thing where people from the dominant Balala caste who are of the island and who are Tamil may experience casteism from Indians and Indian Tamils without even realizing it. Mm sometimes realizing it, sometimes directly and sometimes not, and being considered. And so there are some people who consider, you know, all Sri Lankans as quote-unquote backwards, mm. right? And at the same time are still upholding casteism. And I, I've seen the way in which people have also responded to casteism by saying, no, 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 we are an upper caste people. We are not a lower caste people. <laughs> and uh, again, it's this assimilation, you know, assimilating to superiority and trying to achieve this um, superiority instead of dismantling and addressing the fact that this is ethically horrific, that this system is exploitative and the entire system needs to be dismantled, reorganized and cast apartheid must stop. So the other dynamic that's also happening within the Aralankai Tamil communities and also um, Sinhalese communities is the absence of knowing the African history on the island. Mm. And so the anti-Blackness is deeply seated in both like the ways in which people of the island separate themselves from Africanness and Blackness, despite our direct neighbors to our West. Our actual West mm. is continental Africa. There is no land. It's only water between the African continent and Sri Lanka and South India. So uh, we are ancestral neighbors. And thus we have been kin and cousins and, you know, neighbors for thousands of years. Mm. But so is that we also don't know about the history of African peoples and also the history of Tamil and Sinhalese African ancestors as well. So there has been voluntary as well as forced migration of African peoples to the island. There have been travelers and traders um, from the African continent for thousands of years. And then there was also kidnapping, trafficking, torture, enslavement of African peoples, Bantu-speaking peoples by the Portuguese and the Dutch to Sri Lanka. And the way in which many Bantu-speaking people escaped the oppression, the persecution, the enslavement, the torture that they were experiencing was to assimilate into Tamil and Sinhalese communities. Now, I don't think that means that suddenly Tamils and Sinhalese people can claim blackness, especially within a U.S. context, you know, mm. or um, suddenly be like, oh, there's an amends that needs to be made. We have betrayed our African families by denying their histories, by um, allowing for their subjugation, continued subjugation within the island, um, for um, not extending solidarity, for co-opting but not acknowledging the impact of Africa, African peoples on our communities. And we are racialized within the current global order and definitely within the U.S., we are racialized as Asian mm. and have assimilated to that. 
and have denied our connections to Africanness. And that takes healing, amends, reconciliation. And so there's not this simple reclaiming um, that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually is deep spiritual work, deep commitment, deep trust building that needs to happen for generations because that damage happened over generations. And so those are some kind of the roots that are at some of the anti-Blackness that is so pervasive within, I mean, I can speak for our Tamil communities specifically. And I do think that there are people within our communities with who gain information and who are able to unlearn that conditioning and who are able to connect the dots in really powerful ways and who are able to pledge their allegiance to Black America and to African peoples and who are um, able to grow in dismantling anti-Blackness in our communities. But it is so pervasive and it works so hand in hand in the ways in which casteism functions. And until we radically like transform, dismantle, and reorganize society so that it does not rely on supremacy and caste apartheid, and until we have decolonial movement and transformation that eradicates and amputates <laughs> this disease of anti-Blackness from our communities, we're not going to see the end of it. That's what is, needs to happen. It is a fundamental untwisting of generations and thousands of years. So it's all hands on deck. <laughs> We've got to dig in so that we can repivot the direction that we're moving in because without addressing it, so many structures and systems have been put in place through the economic system, through education, through media, through religion, that the current is just going to continue to move towards casteism and anti-Black racism unless we choose to firmly interrupt it and put deep effort into fundamentally reorganizing the ways in which our societies function. Oh, absolutely. I mean, snaps to all of that. That is so what I need to hear, what all of us need to hear, I think my frustration always has been, even on my own journey of awareness and trying to be open to learning all of the ways or unlearning all of the ways that I've learned these things. I think it's also just frustrating in the South Asian communities to see kind of an othering happen, even in this quote unquote woke era, right? Of like, yes, we know casteism is bad. Anti-Blackness is bad. And so there's an othering of, which is a, still a perpetuation of the old, you know, homophobic, transphobic, like, oh, the, well, that doesn't happen in our communities. There's no, you know, we're not those people. And so there's still in the current generation, this, this reflex to say, oh, now we know these things are bad here are the buzzwords, like, I don't do that or my family doesn't do that. And that there's such inherent privilege in saying that, that if, you, you know, caste doesn't affect your life, it's because you have privilege and to actually dismantle and, and radically change the systems that have been perpetuated, like you said, for generations, takes an, an acknowledgement and saying, hey, I don't know, but how? And I may not be able to say me personally, but we as a community, all of us have had a hand in perpetuating it. And it's going to take all of us to stop it and, and to not shrug it off and say, oh, that's not me or that's not my family or we don't do that. We, you know, we're not racist or we're not. But yet we are. All of us are. And we've been talking 
taught and that's okay. We have to acknowledge that if we're ever going to get into the steps you're talking about of, of radically changing the system. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think there can be a performativity of justice <laughs> and equity and what's right or wrong. I think that can really undermine our work because part of transformation is actually exposing our contradictions and hypocrisies and digging into it, mm. right? That's what I had to do in order to be able to own my sexuality. I was this like good little Catholic girl. I was going to church every Sunday. I was doing the first readings at the Catholic center at school, but then I was like getting drunk and like trying to like flirt or make moves on like a woman and not even remember it. And like, you know, there was something happening that just was not healthy and that was not in alignment with who I was trying to be in this world. And I had to go internal and really dig deep and then also gain information, right? So, so many Tamils just are unaware. I've met Tamil people who didn't even know there were people of African descent that identify as, you know, African peoples on the mm. island. And that's because that information has been hidden. And so part of it is that we need to share information and we need to disrupt these racist dominant narratives, these casteist dominant narratives. And we have to reveal the ways in which casteism and anti-Black racism is just pervasive and permeates our culture. Then there's this other part that needs to happen, which is a deeper internal process. For some people, they may experience it as a spiritual process. For others, it may be more of like an emotional transformation or where we have to really come to terms with the ways in which this has taken over our lives. What's interesting is like, I was born in England in the seventies. And during that time, many Tamils and many South Asians identified as black or politically as black. And so I actually remember a time when South Asians in the UK, when my uncles, when my father identified as black. And then when I went to a kindergarten after being at like a really mixed preschool, I went to a kindergarten that was predominantly white. And there was a girl who made fun of me and told me that I couldn't be her partner because I was black. And I remember thinking at that time, ashamed. I didn't think, oh, I'm not black. I thought, oh, I am black and there's something wrong with that. By the time I'm in third grade in the US and we're learning about like maybe it was fourth grade, we're learning about slavery and the history of racism in America. By that time, I had learned from somehow that I was not Black. So now I was already distancing myself from Blackness because I remember thinking the teacher was very problematic and kept referring to things that the government and white people did as we, she was a white teacher. So she always would say, we did this, you know, like ignoring the fact that there were non-white people in the classroom. And so I kept being like, not me, whenever she said we. <laughs> but I also remember being like, no, but I'm also not black. I'm not them. Some separation had happened. And that's the privilege, right? This privilege of being able to 
assimilate into Asianness. And I think it's really interesting that so many younger people who are of South Asian descent in London right now don't even know about a time when South Asians identified as Black. And so this has happened within our own lifetimes, this separation, this distancing, this distinction, we're not Black, and this lack of solidarity, this lack of allegiance. Like, we should have an allegiance to Black Americans, you know? We should have an allegiance to Black liberation. I know for a fact that I would not be able to have gone to the schools that I went to. I would not have been able to perform on the stages that I performed in. I would not have been able to work the jobs that I worked if it was not for Black liberation. There's absolutely no way that as a Tamil person, I would have been able to be on the white side of Jim Crow. The mobility that so many racialized people on these lands experience is because of the ways Black communities risk their lives in order to change Western society and to call out the hypocrisies as well as Indigenous peoples and call out the hypocrisies of the post-World War II human rights framework and say, hey, (laughs) we're also human. And that was something that impacted the whole world. There's so much information that we still have not spread and shared. And then there's also people, they're benefiting from the racial hierarchy. And so there's some deep internal work that needs to happen about what it means to make amends and reconciliation and truly on like a human ethical soul level be there for our Black and African communities and families and kin and what we need to do to truly be there for our Dalit family and what do we need to do to reconcile and to make amends and truly fight for liberation, right? It's not, I I don't think it's enough for us to just like be like, oh, casteism is wrong. Like, I think we actually have to commit to Black liberation, Indigenous liberation and sovereignty and, and then also commit to Dalit liberation because that those are the forces that are looking to fundamentally reorganize society so that we are no longer economically and socially reliant upon these systems. We are currently reliant on the exploitation of toiling Dalits, you know, throughout South Asia. Like, that's what the economy relies upon. We're currently reliant on the continued genocide of indigenous peoples and the continued exploitation of African peoples and the resources of the African continent, right? I mean, this whole economy is reliant on extracting, extracting, extracting from the land of the African continent. And so what forces are going to fundamentally shift this reliance? We have to be committed to that force. Those forces are Dalit liberation. Those forces are Black liberation. Those forces are Indigenous liberation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for furthering that conversation. I think it's so important for us to acknowledge and talk about and exchange because as you said, so much of that history and that story has been 
systematically taken out. Um, so thank you for furthering our conversation about that, especially on Queering Daisy. It's it's so important. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you overall. I think this has been such a, a wonderful conversation. And, and thank you for sharing your journey and your histories with us, because it's something that I, I consider a privilege to be able to talk to you and, and to capture this moment. So just thank you. Uh, immense gratitude for being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for this work of archiving trans, queer, intersex, gender nonconforming, all of our different variations of, <laughs> of South Asian experience. It's so important uh, to have this archive. And it's also been a wonderful opportunity as I've been listening to different episodes for me to learn across generation and across mm. space about our communities. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, and just before you go, if you can let our listeners know uh, where they can follow your work or find out more about you, you know, once they listen. Absolutely. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, everything like that is Yalini Dream, Y-A-L-I-N-I Dream. I also have a quiet WordPress where I <laughs> also write my thoughts. That is also Yalani Dream as well. For consulting and facilitation, you can always reach me through my consulting team, Vision Change Win. And to book for performances, that I also collaborate with my partner as part of Brooklyn Dream Wolf. So book yalanidream at gmail.com. I'm also part of a talent agency called Awkward Talent. So you can also book us through there. So there's many different ways if you're against social media. <laughs> Email book yalanidream at gmail.com or book dreamwolf at gmail.com and just say, I want to join the mailing list. And uh, we send out a newsletter every couple of months or so as well. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Yalani. It's been such a pleasure. And I highly encourage folks to get in touch with you and follow your work. It's an immense privilege. And I learn from you all the time. So, so thank you again. Oh, thank you, Priya. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Queering Daisy. If you enjoy this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and to make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Queering Daisy. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please feel free to reach us on social media or drop us an email at queeringdaisy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>